So hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome to a Friday Fireside Chat. My name is Rita McGrath, and my guest this week is Joanne Wilson. Um, as a reminder, we are recording this session, so do not say or type anything uh, that you do not want in the New York Times or you don't want your mother to see. Um, <laughs> and um, we'll chat for about an hour. We will take some questions in the chat. If I don't get to them live during the program, we'll go back afterwards and uh, see if we can dig up some answers for you. Uh, so Joanne, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> oh, it's a, such a pleasure. I mean, you were like definitely like on my A-list of people to get here. So Joanne Wilson is a master of reinvention. Uh, she is an angel investor, a, a mom, a, an entrepreneur, a founder of, she's in construction, <laughs> all kinds of things. So sort of the master of the serially different career. Um, and so I thought maybe if you could just um, describe for us your, your journey to become the woman about town, as you'd like to say. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've had literally God knows how many careers, but you know, it's everything, all the dots always connect. Um, and so, you know, I started out in the world of retail um, and I was in retail when retail was good. Um, that was in the 80s. And remember that. I remember that. <laughs> you know, not only was it good, they actually recruited really great, smart, interesting people. Um, and unfortunately, I think that's why retail is the way it is now, is they stopped that recruitment when they went through that cycle of becoming private again. And, um, and not really thinking about the ramifications of what that does to a business. Um, and, you know, I, I left the retail world. I went to the wholesale world. I ended up um, um, going through a series of jobs. I mean, it's really, I remember quitting my job at Macy's, which was the first job. Um, once you quit one job, you can kind of just keep quitting. Um, <laughs> That's so quotable. <laughs> true like I was thinking wow I can't believe I'm gonna leave here you know this is my first job and then I just kept moving on and so I had a variety of jobs in the wholesale world and then I went to run a company in um in the wholesale business and it was a great experience you know I, I grew a company that was probably doing a million and a half dollars to do 15 in a matter of two years and um and then I I went home um for a couple years and I raised kids um, and we moved to the suburbs. We had no money. And, um, and our life changed. My husband's a venture capitalist. And I was literally, um, and is still a venture capitalist. And I was thinking about what I wanted to do next. And, you know, being home with the kids was fun um, until it wasn't. And, um, you know, I was at a play date one day and I thought to myself, oh, my God, if I do this anymore, I'm going to literally kill them and then kill myself. And so <laughs> I, um, I ended up working in uh, the beginnings of the internet industry, which was in the mid-90s. And I went to work with Jason Calacanis. I was the first employee, although I went for purely being um, uh, not employed by him, but doing my own thing. And I helped him grow this business until it got so big, someone wanted to buy it. He didn't want to sell it. I left. I chaired a nonprofit organization instead. The industry exploded because mortgage industry imploded. And, and then I went home again for a couple of years. I got involved with my kids' school. And, um, and then, you know, this thing, the internet really started to take off. And I started blogging. And my God, I've been blogging for now well, like 18, 19 years. And um, I started hearing from a lot of women. 
And these women felt, um, because it was easier to start businesses than it had been in the past, that they their voices weren't really being heard. And so I started meeting this woman and I kind of made this commitment that I'm going to um, start investing in these women and, um, and, and, and see if I could be of help. And so I started investing and um, I also started a conference called the Women's Entrepreneur Conference. And I started writing about these women and you know, 130 investments later, um, you know, I, I sort of hit the, 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 the peak and, um, and we put on this event for seven years and then I started doing a podcast and then we got into real estate and we're building apartment buildings and I'm also doing stuff personally. And, and now I'm looking to figure out actually what I want to do next because I stopped investing a couple of years ago. It's not that I'm not investing, but I just felt that it was so frothy and um, you really couldn't be a generalist anymore. You really had to spend 24-7 in a space to really understand what was going on. You know, when it started, I mean, you could really be a generalist. Um, and you were really picking people. And so um, I've really pulled back. And, um, you know, I've been thinking about sitting on more mature boards because I have all these connections and I have all this information in my head. Um, and I really haven't found the right one yet because I want to feel passionate about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm actually thinking, and I don't know if I'm going to do it, but I might do it. Um, I really am very interested in ensuring that New York comes back um, in a way that um, bigger and better. And I, and I do believe it will because I think evolution is key. Um, and um, I'm thinking about opening a store that's like a concept shop where there will be local politicians that talk on Friday night or maybe women are and men are crocheting in the corner on a Tuesday and you know you can buy and everything's constantly changing and it's connected to the community because when we all get out of this I think we are going to be dying to go places and shop in places and connect to other people and have different kinds of experiences that are much more connected to ourselves not connected to technology. So well, a friend of mine, a friend of mine, is fond of saying that the more pervasive digital becomes, the more valuable analog is, which yes. I think is kind of interesting. So, somebody I want to introduce you to, and we'll do that after this call, is um, a curator of a group called Extraordinary Women on Boards, oh, and she'd be a great contact if you're interested in exploring more boards. I think she has 250 members now. It's really. Yeah, it's sort of organically grown. It's an amazing organization. The other thing I wanted to mention is, have you heard of Showfields at all? Showfields. They're a really interesting retail concept store. They're down in Soho. Um, I, I got a passport to go there. Sorry? How do you spell that? A show, like like putting on a show. Uh, fields. Okay. Yeah. And uh, they are... Um, kind of like what you described there, they have vendors who, um, so here's their thesis, their investment thesis, is that they have these vendors who have a similar kind of demographic customer. So you'll have, you know, people that make gorgeous French, um, uh, you know, those stripy shirts that <laughs> sort of evoke France and, the, and, and salespeople. And then they'll have, you know, like really interesting um, home appliances and that kind of thing. And so their thesis is that this is kind of a community-centered place. Oh, I should go check that out because I'm pretty good about knowing everything that's going on everywhere in the city, but I've not been there. 
check that out. They've got a fourth floor for events. So their merchants can have like, they can bring people in and they do events and they do, um, you know, community things. Um, it's just a really interesting concept. I was on a panel with one of their co-founders. That's how come I know about them. So I had to go check them out, but very, very interesting. Um, so I guess, you know, a lot of people now, and I talk about this in, in some of my work, which is as competitive advantages get shorter, like, you know, <laughs> the life and death of retail, right, um, that people really do have to think about tour of duty careers, right, where they're, um, you know, they're, they, they sign on for a tour of duty, they see it through till some point comes, and then they move on. And I wondered if you might have some guidance for people that are maybe hesitating or afraid of, of making that kind of a change. You know, I think that particularly as we're in this pandemic and it's giving everyone pause to think about themselves and the people they're connected to. And um, I think more and more people want to get up and feel passionate about what they're doing every day. You know, I mean, like I talked to some boards and I thought, I don't really care about their product, right? So why do I want to be involved and sit around a table with people that I don't really care about what they're creating? And so um, I think the key is really saying to yourself, you know, what is it I want to do? I mean, honestly, it's the same advice I give to college students when they graduate and they come talk to me. You know, it's like, you're going to live to be 100. Chances are. And if you decide to take 10 years off to spend with your kids, great. If you want to be in the food industry, hang out in the food industry. You know, if you want to be in literature, hang out in literature and see what opportunities are available to you. Um, you know, if you like working with groups of people, find a group of people you want to work with. Um, you know, if you're much better at, um, you know, rules and, and being in that box, figure out what it is and how that connects with your passion. Um, I just think that, I mean, I know that I'm probably unemployable and so I have to work for myself. Um, and so, you know, I don't have any problems going out and, and getting things done. Um, you know, at first it always seems daunting, but it's just imagine like how it sort of just, it fixes. Like just when you have like a huge list on your calendar or on your desk on Monday and you think, oh my God, I'm never gonna get this done. And then lo and behold, you know, by Friday, you've done most of the list, you know, and I, I think it's really the same exact concept. Mm -hmm. One of the things um, that, that I talk about, so I run a course called uh, Women in Leadership for Columbia, and we have a whole session on how do you figure out what your particular path, what your vision is. And I always say it's got to be this concatenation of three things, right? So what do you really care about? What are you passionate about? What are you best in the world at? which is, you know, a lot of people don't, <laughs> don't sort of think about that enough. And then, and then what's going to, what are you going to get paid for? What's going to drive your economic engine? And where those three things come together is often where the next opportunity can, can be. Yeah. I mean, and I also think, you know, for women that have children, in many ways, it's like raising children. I mean, it is, it's like even working with people and managing people and, um, and figuring out, um, how to give the best advice to you, them or yourself. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's all how you put a spin on it so you get what you want. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, one of the um, causes that I know you're supporting right now is a thing called the neighborhood. 
um, at least it was on your website. It's a lending group that gives money to people who are in danger of being evicted and builds buildings and, and so forth. What, what drew you to that organization? Well, you know, the guy behind that, um, I've known forever. And, um, and, and they're just giving out, essentially, I believe it's giving out money to people that are in need. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm certainly a capitalist, mm -hmm. but I do think that we have a young country and it's not working anymore. Mm -hmm. It's not working for everybody. Mm -hmm. And the concept of helping people in need um, is a good one. Um, and we should all feel empathy, but the reality is, is we shouldn't have to have empathy. We should have equality. And if we can have equality and give people opportunities, particularly now when a lot of people are really hurting, you know, I think that's really what is of interest to me. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. One of my um, guests and, and a good friend of mine is um, Zainab Tom, who is on the faculty at MIT. And she wrote a fantastic book called The Good Job Strategy. And among the things she's working on right now is she said, you know, we can't just th throw up our hands and say bad jobs are inevitable. There are 45 million people in this country who have jobs that pay less than $15 an hour. I mean, I couldn't believe it when she told me that. And you can't raise a family on that. And what I think many of the executives I speak to don't really grasp is that bad performance on the job can be an outcome, <laughs> you know? So they all have in their mindset, this person's only worth whatever, $12 an hour. But, you know, if you're working two jobs to make ends meet and you've got kids at home and you've got an irregular schedule, you're not gonna be a super performer even if you're, you know, Clark Kent. I mean, <laughs> you know? And so the two things go together. Yes, I mean, if you, I always believe that education is the key to any. I mean, as far as we know, there's an Albert Einstein sitting in the middle of Nigeria that has never been given the tools to show the brain that she has in her body. And so, um, you know, there needs to be Medicaid for all, access to education for all. Um, and, you know, people that make that kind of money, we should be supporting them so they can live the right kind of lifestyle that they're children have opportunities and roofs over their head and food at the table and you know and perhaps they will change what their parents didn't have but for the next generation mm. and how likely do you think it is we'll be able to reach a consensus about that sort of creating more support well if you look at the data i think it's 2021 when women make more money than men in this country oh really Yes. And, um, and, you know, we are no longer a white country. So we are really a multiracial country. And that is the majority of the people. Mm -hmm. And so I want to believe that the, if they all go out and vote, and they all create a voice, as we're seeing so many women, so many African Americans, um, you know, and Latinos, run for offices, um, I think over time, you know, we'll see a shift in how our country is run. Mm -hmm. That's going to be fascinating. One of the interesting um, bits of research uh, that, that 
I did actually last March. So, uh, you know, when all this was happening, I was, I was going to write this fantastic newsletter about International Women's Month. And so I was doing all this research on the, the glo coming global transfer of wealth to women. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting was that there, there is going to be this enormous shift of wealth to women because we live longer and uh, and we tend to inherit from our parents as well as as from our spouses, um, and that women investors actually behave differently than male ones. That that they tend to have much more of a focus on, if I recall the arguments, much more of a focus on purpose. So I'm investing for a specific reason, not just to win. <laughs> you know, uh, there's a there's a goal I have in mind. Uh, they tend to be much less like high risk in terms of, of uh, volatility, and they tend to be much more um, uh, what's the right word? Much more patient, you know, that, that it doesn't have to be like in a compressed time period. And, uh, and they don't have to beat an index, you know, if they meet their goals, that's good enough. And so I know you've been, obviously you're a woman investor, and I know you've invested in a lot of companies. Do you, do you think there are advantages that women investors and or women entrepreneurs have as they think about their businesses? Yeah, I think actually all four things you said are spot on. Um, you know, women tend to well, the good thing about women is they tend to cross their T's and dot their I's. And the bad thing about women is they tend to cross their T's and dot their I's. Um, <laughs> but, um, no, I, I think that women have been very risk adverse, um, unfortunately, in terms of investing. Um, that many of them that have created their own personal wealth um, have um, done it in industries that tend to be more conservative. And so when they're going out and they're putting their money back into other uh, businesses that they see um, wanting to support women, um, they tend to be a little more conservative um, before just jumping into the game. And so, um, uh, you know, I see these men, I mean, it's amazing. They're like some that have been so successful and they, you know, they have one conversation with the founder and boom, you know, sure, I'll give you $250,000. And I think, God, no woman would ever do that. <laughs> And they lose patience after a while. Some of them don't even pay attention after they've made the investment. Whereas women are not like that. You know, women are, what can I do? What have I learned? How can I be of help? Um, and very maternal in that way. Um, so I think women are great investors and they're great entrepreneurs. I mean, they really do think about their team. They think thoughtfully. They think about what they want to do. And I think that has been one of the things that I have spent really is a consigliere to all the women I've invested in. You have to, I don't want you to be a guy, but I do want you to be bolder and, um, and um, take more risks. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, put the cart before the horse is a very, very hard thing for women to do. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. And can you think of a case where they, they really did shift a decision? I think most of the women shift after their businesses begin to grow and they've raised a couple rounds. Okay. I've seen it when women are, you know, they're, they're raising their first round, you know, they, they've got everything perfect. They go out and they get the capital and then um, it starts to succeed and they get traction and then they go out and raise money a second time and then a third time. And then by that time, there is an air of confidence and they own the room. Unfortunately, some of these women who have owned the room, and we're seeing this in the press, is that they have not been so nice and understanding to the people that they are managing and working with. 
Mm -hmm. And the ones that are, women tend to um, navigate their lives differently. You know, they're, they think about their friends, they think about their family, they think about their businesses. They aren't going out and making a mass statement on social media or going to the drinks that everyone holds, you know, so that you can meet all the founders. Like I've said to many female founders that have very successful businesses, you've got to go out and you've got to call the top people in your industry that are also running these type of businesses. And, you know, many of them, there's six other men. And I was like, act like you belong at their table because more than likely they might buy your business. Mm -hmm. That's what men do. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the exit then, right? That's interesting. It's harder for women, but as more and more have those successes, the easier it will become for women to follow those paths. Absolutely. I mean, I, I see that in my own, um, you know, experience. Um, but at the same time, women, you know, historically anyway, have had a terrible time getting access to capital. And so, like, I don't know about you, but I have, I've watched the sort of venture capital in the O's go through this sort of herd insanity. Um, and I'm just like, you know, I'm, I mean, I've been saying this since, since 2015, you know, literally, that you, you can only ignore entrepreneurship 101 so long. And, um, you know, when I see some of the valuations and I see some of the, it's like, it's like these guys back up trucks full of money and just sort of say, where do you want us to put it? And can you explain, do you understand this? Do you have any insight at all into that? Same thing. I always say in Silicon Valley, there must be this secret um, river of cash that's behind everyone's desk. And they just... <laughs> it up <laughs> give it a whirl and you know on one hand i give them a lot of credit because they're taking a lot of risk mm-hmm. on the other hand you know i have a friend who became um went to the venture world and he was in la and he followed all the hot deals the first year he raised his fund hung back because he had come out of you know a different um financial industry and he then tracked all of these hot deals that everyone overvalued. And all of them became a big donut. And so I'm not sure I do understand. I think a lot of it is this herd mentality, you know, which is if they think it's good, it's good. And the really good ones think differently and look for the different deals and are digging deeper than outside their backyard. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot of the venture capitalists who did, who had capital and made a lot of investments over the last 10 years are sadly going to find themselves in a very difficult position of trying to raise again from their LPs. Because if they're not paying back, the kind of returns that LPs would expect, LPs might start to look at each other and say, wow, you know, we might as well give money to a socially responsible group of people where we're only going to make our money back, but at least we're making an impact in the world. Right. Right. So we have to see a shift from LPs to not backing um, a bravado of people that are just following or towing the line. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a, I have a, a, a theory about what, what facilitates this kind of craziness, which, and it really relates to the whole income inequality theme that we were talking about a while ago, which is, you know, and, and um, uh, Nick Hanauer uses this example. I don't know if you know him. He's a, he's a, an entrepreneur 
now investor uh, out on the West Coast. Um, and he says, so I'm a really wealthy guy. I love capitalism. It's great, but I'm only going to buy five pairs of pants. You know, if people farther down the food chain um, had more money to spend, they might buy 10,000 pairs of pants, <laughs> you know? And so what you've got is this concentration of wealth sitting there. You've got zero interest rate environment. And so there's all this money kind of sitting around with no place to go. And I think it, 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 in that kind of context, it gets very easy for somebody with a great story to, to you know, illicit, illicit investments. But to me, the whole thing was just, I'm just like, they, they're valued at what? <laughs> you know? And there is so many that I have passed on and became, you know, went up and went down. And, um, you know, I like the five pant analogy, right? And um, I, mean, we, I saw that at Macy's in the 80s, right? This whole concept of will be the gap. And it's just like, that's not who we are. And so it was just massive markdowns and a tremendous mess. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I do feel that as we come out of this pandemic and this time, and hopefully other things that are going on in this country, that we're going to see the rise of what has always made America great, and really Europe as well, which is these small capsule businesses. Um, that it, You don't have to be big. You know, you can think big, but you're going to remain small. Mm -hmm. and, you know, we've done that in retail. Um, we've done this in um, uh, businesses that have been funded by venture. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think it's going to uh, change. Mm -hmm. And the returns are going to be different. There will always mm -hmm. be large ideas. But, um, and there's also been this concept over the 10 years that everybody deserves funding. Um, and that I... You know that needs to change too. Well, and and you know, disproportionately, right? It's it's um, not women, it's not minorities that are getting those kinds of, of investment rounds. And I think Morgan Stanley did a study which suggested that if you invested in women proportionately to the number of women who you know could could potentially start a business, that you would have three point six trillion dollars more wealth creation potential in the economy. I mean it's just it, those are just mind boggling numbers. Staggering. I mean even black founders. I mean I'm involved right now with four um, black um, founders, two that have been investors, two that have been successful in, um, as entrepreneurs that are starting a, a venture group. And, um, you know, they have the pipeline of so many of these businesses um, and many, you know, I back many black founders and, and no one on the other side really even understands the businesses that they're building. Um, and that, that is also a tremendous uh, opportunity that has not been unlocked. Well, and if you think about it, right, I mean, the, in my, I believe that the best businesses often are sparked by a personal experience, you know, something that you saw or whatever. And so if you think about it, all those ideas that would be sparked from the personal experience of people not getting funding are just languishing. They're not going anywhere. Women, I've always thought, tend to build businesses that um, are holes in their lives, right, that are... Mm -hmm. It, they build businesses that have to do with their own personal experiences. Mm -hmm. Men, not as much, right? So when you hear from, I've heard from people over the years, like women need to start building these type of businesses. And it's like, well, then maybe men should stop building gaming businesses. I mean, it's <laughs> really, right? But I, I, you know, women are, 
building businesses that are voids in their lives, right? They're going to have a better understanding of what the business is. Um, you know, and I, I, I invested in a woman who created a business because she had a business. She was very frustrated with the shipping business. And so she created the shipping business. And, you know, I said to investors who in the end invested in her, I was like, you know, I don't want some Stanford kid coming in here. You know, two guys, they were like, you know, we see a huge void in the shipping business, but they've never even shipped a product or been on a ship, right? <laughs> I mean, what's the point of that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Oh, that's so cool. Um, so you talked about, uh, well, you know, prioritizing your family at, at certain points in time um, and then kind of going back to doing other things. Um, and one of the things I'm really kind of intrigued by is um, that, that the way we have designed most large organizations and you know, you're an entrepreneur, but, but you have worked with large ones, is they're all designed around a male life cycle model, right? And I've been saying this for years. So in your 20s, you know, you're sort of figuring out who you are. In your 30s, you're sorted into high potentials and everybody else. In your 40s, you're sort of taking the reins of command. In your 50s, you're allowed one, you know, massive <laughs> midlife crisis. Um, and then in your 60s, you're exhausted and you go want to go off and play golf. Um, but I just don't think that works for women. And one of the things that I'm really intrigued by is as we think about these tour of duty careers that we're starting to embark on is the ability of women, you know, in their fifties, sixties, even seventies to really, you know, it's my turn now, like let's start a whole new way of, of, of being now. How, how does that look from, from what your vantage point? Well, I, I believed that through the last um, decade, which I like to refer to as the startup decade, is that as more women were starting businesses um, or more people in their 20s were not going to one company and sitting there for 10 years um, and they were like bouncing all over and finding themselves is that a lot of the large corporate companies found themselves in a position where when people turned 30 there weren't that many around to take the reins of management mm -hmm. And so they have to change the way that they are structured to think about family first. You know, um, a naive as it might be, in the 90s when everything changed with technology and internet, I believe that it was going to be a game changer for women in companies. Um, it's really happened now through the pandemic, right? So you can, you can work out of your home. Um, and you can zoom into meetings um, and it changes the way that companies are going to be structured and they have to be supportive of families because when you're home by you're doing that and if you have a partner you know you're not going to just take everything on and the partner is going to be in a separate office just doing his thing or her thing and so fundamentally we have to shift how corporate America is run and um, and if it isn't corporate America, just like retail today, where everything has gone bankrupt, is going to find themselves in the same position, which is there are not enough smart, hardworking people working within those companies because they didn't do the right thing for them. In the early stages. Yeah. 
That is super interesting. Because um, when one of, you know, one of the things I study is innovation and growth. And there's a ton of research which shows that as competitive advantages from technology or entry barriers or, you know, the conventional barriers to entry fade away, that increasingly the only source of sustainable advantage is that cadre of people who understand the secret sauce of the company, who've been with it long enough to really know what the, you know, what the idiosyncratic things are. And what we've seen in the last, you know, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years, is that this move away from that, this move toward, you know, people, oh, fire the left-hand side of the building. I mean, if you go back to the 70s, if, if you had a layoff, you couldn't, you couldn't hold your head up in polite society as a CEO. I mean, it was, it was just considered completely unthinkable. And we've been kind of overtaken by this, by this financialization of everything. And I know you've been very eloquent on the subject of private equity and its effect on retail. Um, maybe you could expand on that. <laughs> You know, it, 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 I was saying to someone the other night, if we look at the 90s, when businesses, it was inexpensive to start a company, right? off the shelf hardware or software, you know, it was not a big deal. You started these companies and the large companies were like, oh, oh, we need technology, right? We need technology, but they didn't really embrace technology. They just kind of embraced technology, right? <laughs> Fast forward 30 years, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and most of them have realized, whoa, we have not been keeping up with the technology situation. What we've been doing is taking on massive debt to restructure, to buy more, to, you know, buy undervalued companies and then fire everyone in them and then re-drigger them around so we can resell them to another private equity company, you know, and, 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 you know, it's like the Warren Buffett saying, you know, when the tide pulls out, you see who's naked. And I think as a country, we're realizing that we're living on debt and, um, and we have destroyed not only companies, but the people that are working for these companies. And it's just not, it's just not a good look. And we should be more thoughtful about how we grow these companies. I mean, I'm an invested in a one uh, in a woman who has a company, um, and she has been very thoughtful how she's built the company. It's profitable, shocking, right? I said from the very beginning, make it profitable, get it profitable, get it profitable. She'll do over twenty million dollars in revenue this year. Ten people work for her. So. In the past, companies that did $20 million had 100 people working for them. Private equity comes in, fires 80 of them. Where do those 80 people go? Right. So I think there's many pieces to this. We have to be smarter about how we build our companies, that we don't get fat just because there is fat. And we have to think better about what debt means. To me, debt means you take over debt for something, you pay it back the next month when you get the money coming in the door. You don't continue to run this debt forever and ever and ever. Um, you know, I mean, my God, there's a company going public this week. Isn't it Pal Palomar, whatever, Paladimar? Palantir. I mean, it's got 80, it lost like $800 million last year. I don't understand that is okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's bizarre. It's like it's like the investing community has sort of collectively lost its mind, um, and in some in some cases. And then there are others. Um, one of the people that I'll be having on the fireside chat is a wonderful entrepreneur named Victoria uh, Montgomery Brown, and. She's like, well, I kind of built my business on the East Coast the old-fashioned way. Like, we started off with customers. I remember I was at a some kind of entrepreneur event and uh, and all these guys well you know you know the type and they're all these guys were like talking about their businesses and you know, online just, and um, and this one guy says yeah yeah I found a unique source of funding and then all the heads turn and they're like how did you get it I I, I call it customer backed funding <laughs> and the room went completely quiet <laughs> it's like you can't go wrong if somebody's willing to pay you to do something right I mean if, 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 you know, it's a good way to start a business way to start a business but the, the debt the debt has to change and um it's um it's just unhealthy for our economy and jobs and people it affects people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well i think um some of this didn't used to be legal i mean the 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 whole um bonfire of the vanities era in the 80s that's when that all really started to shift right when you you started to have um what do they call them leveraged buyouts um and i believe there's a book about that and and uh it was i think bonfire of the vanities and one character says to the other they're gonna let us do this this is actually legal (laughs) i mean they were surprised at it um so we we, we've had a kind of a massive shift over over many years in in regulation and in the sense of the responsibilities of business so one of the things that i've been very intrigued by is um after the end of the second world war um many groups came together and one of them was called the um, economic development something group of business people but this was business led and they said you know we've got million literally millions of people coming back here from fighting overseas no jobs you know nothing for them to do they are trained fighters like this is not going to end well and they resolved to basically build the american middle class they said you know we'll take somewhat less profits we'll you know pay decent salaries we'll allow labor to have a seat at the table we're going to make all these changes and what started to happen i think in the kind of 70s 80s time was that got unraveled that that sort of connection got unraveled and i think we've forgotten that that's what created you know a lot of what the wealth that's now being extracted you know, I mean, the banking crisis that Obama saved, um, you know, is, was a great thing, but nobody was held accountable. Mm-hmm. And it created a tremendous amount of cash in our economy. Like you said earlier, there's all this cash out there. And- You're behind um, your desk, just, just look yeah, behind you. Here, take some. <laughs> now, I think that, um, I don't understand why the government even through this pandemic hasn't said, let's have a bill for infrastructure. Let's have a bill for new transportation. Let's have a bill for building new houses for affordable houses for middle income and low income. Let's rethink education platforms because they can hire all these people that will then have jobs and then get a paycheck and they put the money back into the economy through taxes and feeling good about themselves and who knows where any of them could grow and build and do other things. I mean, this whole concept of like giving money to the wealthy and not creating, rebuilding our country, I don't understand it. It makes zero sense to me because everyone has to be part of rebuilding our economy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really a shared, um, a shared responsibility. So um, you were talking about years ago, just speaking of wealth, um, sort of 
being moving, getting married, moving in together, having no money at all. How did you sort of shift from that position? You know, we have, um, you know, it's like walking, you know, <laughs> one foot in front of the other. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, no one told me what it was going to be like when I had kids, you know, that you'd be responsible for these living, breathing creatures. Like, you, know, you can't buy a bag of, a, a package of batteries without these like safety instructions coming in. And yet you can bring a kid home from the hospital without even a guidebook. <laughs> you know, and, you know, I always thought, you know, when I was in college that I was going to run like a hundred billion dollar retail company in four years. I had no idea what corporate America was about. Both of my parents were entrepreneurs. So I was completely oblivious to what the reality was of that. And, um, and my husband, you know, had no idea what he wanted to do. He was an engineer. My mother told him to go to grad school. And so he did. And, um, you know. You listened to your mother? <laughs> to grad school. And then he ended up, you know, working for these two guys that, um, you know, were a little bit like the two guys from Trading Places. And he became, you know, a venture capitalist and, um, and sort of hurt, you know, sort of seeing what was happening in the, in the internet and in technology and started investing in it. And, um, and, you know, and I got to the point where I was like, you know, I'm going to stay home for a couple of years. I mean, I always laugh because you know, I say to Fred, like, I was supposed to be Fred Wilson. I'm not exactly sure how you became Fred Wilson, you know, but, you know, men's careers, I think, start here, and then they just slowly accelerate, just you said, like, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and women, because many of us, not all of us, raise families, you know, we find ourselves sort of going like this, and, um, and so for a variety of reasons, based on how I was raised, um, and I didn't want to raise my children that way, is that I made them their, my number one priority. And so mm -hmm. I was like this. Mm -hmm. and, um, and over time, um, you know, we started to build more capital and our lives changed, and um, which gave us the ability to move back to New York City and get involved in organizations that we can hopefully make impacts in. Um, and, you know, I think that the whole world of cryptocurrencies is really, really interesting and, and one that my husband has been involved in just because it feels very similar to what the internet felt like in the 90s. Mm. It's changed. And I believe as well that those currencies are going to change the way the world is because they are global currencies, and um, and we are seeing what's going on right now, you know, in Belarus or in Bolivia or in Lebanon, you know, where they have access to the internet. It will eventually happen in China, which is like enough is enough, you know. And so, with those kind of currencies, enough can be enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very interesting when you think about the effect of a distributed ledger on, you know, the need for a central currency, the need for a central 
responsibility. The other thing I find is fascinating about cryptocurrencies is um, in my book, um, Seeing Around Corners, I talk about the life cycle of an inflection point. And I think you're right. I think crypto probably is. And so you have this initial hype, right? So that would be Ethereum, right? And everybody goes, oh my God, you know, Bitcoin and all that stuff. And then, then you have the shakeout, right? And everybody goes, see, I told you so that wasn't involved in it. <laughs> but then there are a few survivors. <laughs> and it's like the early, you know, right? 1999. I mean, it was so depressing to be an entrepreneurship professor in 1999 because these kids would come in with like a million and a half dollars and say, well, I have a business model. I'm like, well, do you have customers? Do you have any plan to maybe get customers at some stage? They'd be like, no. <laughs> and then it all blew up. So yes, there's some survivors. Um, and then what starts to happen is you start to create a reality around the thing. Um, and then eventually the ecosystem falls into place and then you have the inflection point that sweeps through. Um, but in those early stages, it's very hard to confuse the hype from the, the reality. Um, you know, it, it's, it's hard to figure out like what, what bet do you really want a place in those early stages and you have to be really open-minded to see that this is how we're going to evolve mm. not easy for many yeah so one of the things i think that differentiates i think successful entrepreneurs and venture capitalists from a lot of other folks is the range of possibilities they're prepared to entertain um, do you have any practices? I mean, you were saying before, if you stay in one place too long, you feel like you're getting out of touch. Are there things you like to do to kind of keep that perspective? Um, I mean, I read like a fiend. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, I also read, you know, magazines and things in fashion and things in design and like, and what's happening in the arts because, you know, arts and architecture and archaeological how it connects to architecture and music and all of those um uh verticals that are more perhaps emotionally um uh industries um i pay more attention to them because many of the people in those are reacting to what's happening around to them mm. and so Sometimes I think of it as just like cocktail fodder, <laughs> but um, you know, as an as a country versus Europe that supports all of these industries with um, government backing, you know, if you're an artist, you know, you're not going to be destitute. You know, if you live in Europe, you can get grants. You can live with a house a roof over your head. You can make art. You know, some are more successful than others. It's the same thing in music. It's the same thing with. You know, looking at, um, you know, what's going to climate change is going to happen. What are we going to do architecturally? Um, you know, there's a place, this random place in northern um, uh, Europe that is over a huge um, uh, ore uh, fund uh, hole where it's the largest one in the world. And it's getting bigger and bigger and the city next to it's going to sink. So they're rethinking about what are we going to do? They're going to literally repick up the city and they're going to think about what should remain and then moving it, right? So I think that a lot of that stuff makes me think about businesses and evolution versus just business at large. I think you got mm -hmm. a big cloud and you have to think globally. I think that's, that's such great advice because when I, when I, see executives that have missed an inflection point or they've overlooked it almost invariably what happens is that they um 
they're just very narrow, you know, they're very narrow. They're like focused on what's today's operation and who am I talking to? And they're not really thinking about the arts or, you know, something that's a bit farther afield. So I think that's a really interesting connection to make. You know, art is a reflection of what's kind of going on um, around us, you know? So, you know, whenever we travel, I mean, where we spend time is in galleries and museums and seeing music and walking the streets and seeing retail and going to places to eat and getting a vibe for how these people live. And the reality is we all live the same. And um, we have different interests or different ways that we might want to live our lives. But I, I really believe at the end of the day, everyone just wants to have family and health and, um, and safety. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the sort of sad things, and this is what we've talked about a little bit already, is if you look at the cost of living uh, increases in various sectors that you might spend money on, you know, things like electronics and apparel and those kinds of things have all basically been in deflation. And the things that have been the highest inflation areas are education, healthcare, and housing. <laughs> so the three things that you most need to have like a, a, a good life um, have become increasingly out of reach and unaffordable for um, you know, a lot of people. And we've created that. Mm-hmm. We've created that and we have to figure out how to untangle that. Mm-hmm. So you're involved in a housing venture, as I understand it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so, um, um, you know, we invest in very risky things. And so when we um, uh, create capital, we put it into very safe things, such as real estate. <laughs> so um, we're really very proud of what we've done. Um, we have built uh, one apartment building. We're about to build a second one. These are rentals. And they are completely carbon free. Um, we will be our own um, electric company um, with solar panels. We're connected to the grid. We're using cross laminated timber, which is used really around the globe and is finally being used in New York um, versus concrete. They're passive homes. So um, the air inside is really healthy. Um, they're also uh, completely wired, so uh, internet is free for everyone who lives there. Um, there's compost, there's a place to put your bikes. Everyone has an outdoor um, area. Um, the elevator gets off at your door. So all of the things, and, and, and they were um, built thinking like, if I was gonna live there, you know, how would I wanna live there, right? So um, they're really nice um, and they're, completely designed for the next generation that wants to be the do the right thing for our society and for our environment. And where is it located? Located in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are also actually have two um, retail spaces underneath. And so what we did actually is we are putting in there uh, 26 pods um, each of them will be eight by eight um, and you can rent them and it will be completely, I mean, I hate to say COVID free because that's just a terrible thing, but they're essentially COVID free. And so you, a lot of businesses are now saying to their employees who are in these small one bedrooms or need to get out, you know, here's a stipend because we're not going to go back to the office. 
And so you can rent this space. We'll have desks that go up and down. You'll have coffee pot. Um, you know, there'll be bath, two bathrooms that when you close the door, there's this 30 second thing that they're also doing in airplanes that cleans up the area. There'll be a changing table in one of them. I mean, so all of these things that we're really thinking about how do people want to live in the future? That's so inspiring. Yeah, so, um, you're, you're heading back to New York. Um, heading back to New York. Yes, um, yeah. I mean, I'm excited. I, I, um, I think New Yorkers are people that reinvent themselves mm -hmm. and, um, they care deeply about the city. They care deeply about their arts. They care deeply about going out, going to eat. I mean, all the things that makes that vibe and fantastic thing about New York City. And so we're excited about going back. So how do you think it's going to play out now? Um, you know, people are, because some restaurants are, you know, partial capacity. Um, Broadway, I don't know, you know, it's uh, what, what, I mean, where, but, but the, the beautiful thing is, I mean, I've, and I've been saying this since the beginning of the pandemic, you know, there's so much unfreezing that's happening right now. You know, that so many of the old barriers and, and traditions are, have been knocked down and we have maybe the chance to start fresh and reinvent a little bit. I hope so. Things have to change. First of all, we can go right back to the money, right? People that took out mortgages for their commercial spaces that they cannot, because of the bank, bring down the rent. So I think we should have um, occupancy taxes, that if your place is empty for more than one month and you can't figure out exactly what the price should be, we're gonna charge you for it and you're gonna mm. have to pay for it. And you're gonna mm. force the banks to make a change. That's mm. number one. Number two is, I think it's great that we raised the um, hourly wage for people in restaurants that are even just cleaning pots and pans to $15 an hour. But you can't survive as a restaurateur. 10 years you know, ago, restaurateurs had a 20% gross margin. Now they can barely break even. And so we need to rethink about how do we tax restaurants in a way that is good for everybody so that a restaurateur can make money and the neighborhood benefits from the restaurant. Um, so I think a lot of things we have to rethink about the tax structure, even the way that we, you know, the old liquor laws make no sense whatsoever. Um, you know, why can't you have a fantastic cheese and, um, you know, uh, store and also sell liquor? It doesn't make any sense. And so someone really needs to, you know, in government, rethink about how do we get rid of the obviously tremendous deficit we have and think how the tax structure works in order to create growth. Because right now, all it did was add to that insanity where we all got, that we were all sitting on the top of this mesa and looking around each other and thinking, this isn't working. We need to like literally climb up a different mountain and have a different road and rethink about how our cities are gonna function. I think that's inspiring. I um our daughter lives in Brooklyn and uh every so often she'll send us a picture of these takeout cocktails they're pre-mixed takeout cocktails and that that never used to be legal and I'm thinking why not you know <laughs> why shouldn't you be able to enjoy that <laughs> you know and so we have to rethink the police we've got to, I mean there's so many things that needs to change um and you know right now 
I'm hoping that this next generation of people that are being voted into office that are in their 30s and 40s and are myriad of faces with a variety of different experiences, you know, will be the people that are going to create change. Because right now, the people are in leadership in our government, federal government, and our New York City government aren't doing anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I used to I used to work for government um, in the back, I'm dating myself now back in the Koch years, you know, the how am I doing age. And that was my actually my first job was was in the city government. And, uh, and what was cool about it then was, um, and I think there's an analogy to be drawn here. Um, so I joined probably about five years after the famous headline. Um, um, uh, was it Bush? who was, was dropped, basically the president to New York City dropped dead, right. Um, and you know, we had we had crime, we had graffiti, we had, I mean, it was just the worst. Um, and when you were working for government at that time, it was like you could try anything because there was no worse it could get. <laughs> and I kind of wonder if we're at one of those moments um, or that we're approaching one of those moments now. I think we are. I mean, during the 70s, um, uh, Rudin basically created a team of people yes. um, that got together and rethought thought about how to restructure New York. They saved the parks, they saved all the museums. Um, they you know, took their capital, but they put the money where their mouth is and they got behind the next mayor and said, here is the research we've done, here is what we need to do. And I know that there is a, you know, a group of that going around right now. And um, you know, I hope that they bring on the right leaders who can think out of a box and really think about everything needs to change because it was only working for very few. Yes. Yes. Well, this is, wow. This has been an inspiring conversation. Um, how do people learn more? Where, where do they, what, what, where would you suggest they go to learn more about you, your world, maybe your husband's world? <laughs> Find me on my blog, gothamgal.com. Super simple. I never respond to LinkedIn. So FYI, <laughs> find my emails out there. Um, and um, I'm on Twitter at, at the Gotham Gal. Um, I'm on Instagram at Goth I think at the Gotham Gal as well. So I'm pretty easy to find. And um, um, and I actually do respond on my emails. So there you go. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you so much. This has been just so much food for thought. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> <Really good. laughs>